Well, let's, let's bow our heads for prayer, and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you have woken us up. Uh, although it is a brisk morning, we're thankful that you have warmed us with your presence here in Burden Hall. I pray that as we open your word, particularly the book of Revelation, that you will give us understanding and that you will give us clarity so that we may see Jesus clearer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's get right to it. Let's start in Revelation chapter 1. Uh, we gave you a sort of a, a teaser, an overview, different perspectives or different ways you can look through the book of Revelation. But today, I want to focus, first of all, and we may get to other things, I want to focus on John's prescribed method or his uh, hermeneutic, if you will. How, how do I define the word hermeneutic? All it means is how you understand something, how you go about studying something. That's sort of the working definition. It's not the technical theological one. But in the first few verses of Revelation, it sets the stage by telling us the perspective by which we can thoroughly and clearly understand this book. It is, uh, it is a treat, I guess, in a way, because not all books in the Bible does that. Uh, sometimes I wish the Apostle Paul would uh, give us a little more assistance in understanding what he's writing. But John here, he helps us out. <clears throat> so the first three verses, I like to call it uh, Revolu- Revelation's hermeneutic, or how we can understand the book of Revelation. So let's, let's look there, the first three verses. Where's the mic? Okay, Norman's got the mic. Can you read the first three verses for us? Sure. <clears throat> The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. All right, thank you, Norm. Those are the first three verses. And I want to spend a few moments here because it, it lays a foundation on, on the rest of the book, the rest of this study. First, the revelation of who? But in the, in the title of my Bible, it says of uh, St. John the Divine. Um, the proper title should be Revelation of Jesus. And uh, we talked about this last time and uh, later on in this chapter we're going to we're going to discuss one of the ways in which we can see Jesus revealed okay but skipping ahead here it says the revelation of Jesus Christ which who gave unto him <clears throat> so this book originated from God himself which means it comes from a divine origin uh, that's how the whole bible is written but very specifically the book of revelation expresses it in no uncertain terms. It comes from God, okay? And it continues, God gave it unto him, which is Jesus, to show unto his servants things which must, when? Shortly come to pass. Keep that in mind. We're coming back to that. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. 
So you see the, the process by which the revelation is given. It comes from God the Father, it goes to Jesus, it goes to an angel, and then it goes to John, and then it comes to us. <clears throat> and there's something unique that happens <clears throat> between the angel and the John stage. You, you see that special word? God simply gives it to Christ, Christ to his angel, and then the angel doesn't just give it to John. The angel does something with the message. Anyone catch the word I'm looking at? What's that? Show. That's not the word, at least uh, in the King James, that's not the word it uses. Signifies. That word is very important because it, it helps us understand Revelation. The word signifies, I looked it up in uh, Webster's 1828 Dictionary. It says to make known something either by signs or words. By signs or words. So in other words, the angel signifying something translated the direct meaning into signs or symbols. So the book of Revelation, from the very onset... It explains itself as being interpreted through signs and symbols. And now why is that important? <clears throat> if you remember William Miller, he is a prominent figure in our church's history. He had a principle of prophetic interpretation or biblical interpretation. It is you take everything literal as much as possible unless there is an obvious need to take something symbolically. I think that is a very practical, very logical uh, way of reasoning. But the book of Revelation, from the onset, it says, this book was written using signs. So very, from its very beginning, it helps us understand it's, it's not just literal. It's not just literal. And um, there are signs that contain in this book. But, you know, the, the difficulty is um, not to take everything symbolically. Uh, but anyway, that's something we'll have to take on a case-by-case -case basis, but from the very beginning, it, it warns us, look, this thing is written in signs. Okay, we continue. So John gets this message. Okay, verse 2, it says, John, who bear record of the word of God, and of the what? Testimony of Jesus. Keep that, keep that phrase in mind. We're going to come back to that. Of all things which he saw, Again, this is another key to understanding Revelation. In fact, let's skip down to chapter 1 and verse... Oh, there are a couple verses here. Verse 19. We'll have someone read that one verse for us. Anyone? Can you read that from the beginning one more time? All right. 119? Yeah. Yes. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. <clears throat> A very important clue to how to understand Revelation is that John simply wrote down what he was shown. Meaning, <clears throat> he's sitting here with his, with his pad. God says, prepare to write. But God doesn't dictate to him. God shows him. And John simply writes down what he sees. 
So there's a lot of visual effects in the book of Revelation. There are sequences, things that come, one came after the other. There are a lot of location terms. He came up in this place, uh, in the seas, uh, in the land. And there are a lot of numbers. He had ten, ten heads, seven horns, or seven heads, excuse me, ten heads, or seven heads, ten horns. And um, a lot of visual language. So in order for us to really understand Revelation, we need to have very vivid imaginations to see what John is describing. And uh, in a little bit later, we're going to sort of have an exercise where John very clearly wrote down what he saw. And unless we see what he sees, just reading the words isn't going to cut it. Okay, now I want to take a step backwards here. Verse 1 and verse 3, and actually a few other verses later on in the book mentions it. But very important point. Verse 1, it says, To show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And the verse 3, at the very end of the verse, it says, For the time is at hand. What this means is that the book of Revelation is time sensitive. You know what time sensitive means? Have you ever gotten mail and it's like an advertisement and it says time sensitive deliver within such and such a time? The book of Revelation was given to us right on the cusp of the events foretold inside about to happen. So whatever is being about to be explained, John or, or God says, John, you gotta, you got to write this down. you got to get this out because what I'm telling you is about to begin. You see where, where I'm getting that? It must shortly come to pass. The time is at hand. So what this tells us is that the book of Revelation must be interpreted within the context of history from the time of John until the end of time. Because you're going to see in a little bit... it. The book of Revelation extends all the way until the second coming, and, and after, actually. But in chapter 1, it specifically goes until the second coming. So what does that mean? <clears throat> I'm going to try to inoculate you guys, okay? So if it's a little above your head, don't worry about it. Just remember, what, remember sort of the gist of what I'm saying, and, and then if something comes up along the way, you meet something that's sort of questionable, uh, hopefully this will help you uh, not, not get distracted. <clears throat> Three words, okay? Preterism, historicism, and futurism. These are three schools of prophetic interpretation. Particularly, they apply it to Daniel and Revelation. Preterism, pre, P-R-E, means before, right? Pre-test, meaning the, the test before the real test. <clears throat> it's, um, it means everything was taken, all the prophecies in Daniel and Revelation took place in the past. Prior to the second century AD. Like the Antichrist, or, or the little horn, let's say, of Daniel was Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Greek king. Uh, that's the preterist view. He sacrificed a pig on the Jewish altar. That's preterism. It interprets everything in the past, okay? 
and futurism interprets everything in the future. Antichrist is coming way in the future, after the, after the time of tribulation. Um, dispensationalism is one prominent school that arises from futurism, where the Christian world is divided, or history, is divided into dispensations. And in different dispensations, God works in different ways. Uh, those are all incorrect. And according to Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, John tells us that to understand the book of Revelation, you must have a historicist perspective, which means you need to interpret things within the scope of history. It's about to take place, meaning in the time of John, and it extends all the way until the second coming. So what, what's historicism? Historicism basically takes the prophecies of the Bible and interprets them within the context of history, within context of history, not just lumping everything in the past or everything in the future. Just a, just a little hint, you can tell pretty much what school of prophetic thought someone is coming from based on where they place the Antichrist. That's sort of the rule of thumb. If they place the Antichrist in the past, they're preterist. If they place the Antichrist in, way in the future, they're futurist. But if they say the Antichrist has been working since the time of John, which he actually says, by the way, in his epistles, and he has progressed and he has a final role in the end times, well, you're probably talking to a historicist. And by the way, you're probably talking to an Adventist. But um, anyway, that's really important. Okay, question, microphone. Thanks for raising your hand. I think verse 19 yes. really clarifies that. Absolutely. Because it says that things that thou hast seen, things that are right now, and then the things that shall be that's hereafter. Right. That, that clearly... Exactly. That's, that's, an excellent, that's an excellent text. Revelation 1.19. John was shown things that he has seen. That's in past tense things which are and things that will be. So it's talking about prophecies throughout the scope of Scripture. And um, it's very important that we establish this point. Revelation cannot be rightly interpreted unless you take the historicist point of view because some rather prominent, uh, unfortunately, Adventist preachers even, right now are in the, in the hope of finding new light and trying to, to um, come up with the latest sensational teaching have begun to reinterpret established prophecies of the Bible, things as clearly demonstrated as the 1260, 2300 days, and uh, predominantly the 1290, 1335, but even the seven trumpets and seven churches, seven seals, they put it all in the future. And they say they have ways to get around it, but that's not the proper way of interpreting the book of Revelation based on what Revelation itself says. So if nothing else, I want you to understand this one thing. Revelation must be understood within the context of history. It is not all future, it is not all past, it's it takes place during history as it occurs. All right. Is that, is that clear? Amen? Okay. So those are the first three verses. Oh, wait, we're not done. Okay, verse 3. 
It says, Blessed is he that readeth, that hear, and that keep those things which are written therein. So there's a special blessing. There's a very special blessing given to those who study this book. And it's very interesting that um, there are still, uh, maybe less, I don't know, but there are still teachers of the Bible who say that the book of Revelation is unessential. It is um, it's difficult to understand, or you can't understand it. There's some that even go that far. But excuse me, God says there's a blessing to those who study it. You have a question or comment? Yeah, verse 3 says there's a blessing for those who study this book. So who are we going to believe? The scholars who really say that they don't, say that you can't understand Revelation because they don't understand it themselves? Or do we just take the Bible as it reads and say, look, God says there's a blessing for those who read it, and so I'm going to study it. But very important, there's a blessing to those who read to hear and to keep. You shall know the truth. The truth shall set you free. And this, <clears throat> this book of Revelation then therefore, by the very beginning, in order to really understand it, we need to come to this book with the preparation to do what it asks us to do. So before we get into it, God is almost saying, look, there's a blessing for you, but this blessing is not going to come by just you reading and intellectually understanding. It's going to require some action. So this book, and hopefully this class, somehow galvanizes us to some sort of action. Because without it, we're not going to receive the blessing of Revelation. And we're not going to fully understand what the book is, is teaching. It requires action. I, found, I find this quote found in Faith I Live By, page 345. I think this is the blessing. It can be one of the blessings. When the books of Daniel and Revelation are better understood, believers will have an entirely different religious experience. They will be given such glimpses of the open gates of heaven that heart and mind will be impressed with the character that all must develop in order to realize the blessedness which is to be the reward of the pure in heart. The Lord will bless all who will seek humbly and meekly to understand that which is re revealed in the revelation. This book contains so much that is large with immortality and full of glory that all who read and search it earnestly receive the blessing to those that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein. One thing will certainly be understood from the study of Revelation, that the connection between God and His people is close and decided. So, studying this book, it is from Faith I Live By, page 345, third paragraph, and it's a whole paragraph. <clears throat> the blessing comes to those who study this book and you can be granted a completely different experience religiously. And I think one of that thing, the reason why is because it, it prompts us to character development. That's the key. Revelation prompts people to character development. All right. So, 
I am going to run out of time. But let us continue here. So verses 1 through 3, that's really the, the crux of, of this class, at least for today. Um, I want us to understand how we can properly understand the book of Revelation based on what Revelation itself says. So we've already talked about signs. There's going to be symbols. We've talked about the importance of, of keeping what is already uh, what, what is shown us here. And it also gives us the context historically, which school of prophetic thought we need to use to properly understand, which is historicism. So I think we've gone through some of those key points. All right, the next section is Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. So if someone is, is, while someone volunteers to read that with a, with a loud voice, Revelation 4 through 8 is what I call the summary. It's a summary of the entire book. John, in the first chapter here, in four verses, gives us a quick run-through of the book of Revelation. Okay, so Mel, can you read those four verses for us? John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. All right. So, again, this, this book is called The Revelation of Jesus. And right here, it gives us sort of a description, right? It gives us a few terms that Christ is described by. But um, these descriptions actually act, they serve as a summary of the book of Revelation. What do I mean? Okay. Jesus Christ, this is verse 5, Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness. Okay, what does it mean to be a faithful witness? When is a faithful witness necessary? In some sort of a trial. So if you look in Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, we'll have another reader Actually, I'll, I'll just read that. Revelation 3, verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. The faithful witness appears again in the church of Laodicea. And anyone know what the word Laodicea means? A people judged or judged people. So it just happens at the seventh church which is seventh period of church's history, also is a church that is going through judgment, Jesus appears as a true and faithful witness. Okay, so Jesus appears as a true and faithful witness. But let's go back to John chap- uh, Revelation chapter 1. So Jesus is a faithful witness, and 
It says he is the first begotten of the dead. First begotten of the dead. Now, what does that mean? First of all, when we come to the seven seals, the book with seven seals can only be opened by one person. You remember who that is? Specifically, it is the lamb that was slain. He is the lamb that was slain. This is found in um, Revelation chapter 5. Uh, right in verse 6, it says, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. Jesus was the first begotten of the dead. And in the fifth seal, uh, maybe I'm going too too far off on the tangent here, but I'll just say this and move on. There are souls crying out under the altar meaning those martyrs who have died on God's behalf. And Jesus says, just a little while longer, because he's already conquered death. He is the first begotten of the dead. Therefore, those who have died in the faith have the assurance that because Christ has already passed through death, he's conquered death, they can can, uh, be resurrected. And actually, the seventh seal is where it really takes place, but we don't have time to explain seventh seal. But the seventh seal is particularly when the first begotten of the dead comes into play. But the seals, okay? And then back in John verse, uh, chapter, I keep calling it John. It's Revelation, written by John. Uh, chapter 1, he's a faithful witness. He's the first begotten of the dead. And then he's the prince of the kings of the earth. All right, that one. Let's look in Revelation 11. Revelation 11 is the end of the seven trumpets. 11 verse 15. I'm just going to read now because we're running out of time. Okay, hope you don't mind. Okay, Revelation 11 verse 15. It says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. In other words, the kingdoms of this world, at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, become subservient to Christ, which by default makes him the prince of the kings of the earth, does it not? So the seventh trumpet then applies to the the third term, which we read about Christ. So you see what we've seen so far. Faithful witness, seven churches. First begotten of the dead, seven seals. Prince of the kings of the earth, seven trumpets. We're just sort of moving through the book of Revelation. Jesus' description is the summary. But there's more than that. Uh, Revelation 1, I'll just refer back there. I'm not going to read the verse. Um, Verse 6, it says, He has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. Revelation chapter 20, we see verse 4. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. It says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon his foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So they're kings. They're they're sitting on thrones, and they're reigning. Verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ. 
So Revelation chapter 20, God's people reign as kings and priests. And then Revelation 1, the, the, more, the more familiar text from this chapter, verse 7 then goes on and says, Behold, every eye shall see him, right? He cometh with clouds, every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. That clearly is describing the second coming. Jesus coming, uh, encapsulated within that, there's also uh, the special resurrection of those who were there, who killed Christ. And um, every eye will see him at the second coming. So <clears throat> we see a very quick, in just a few words, a zip through the book of Revelation. All based on the description of Christ and what he does. But verse 8, verse 8, it says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. What does that mean? There are a lot of things that it could mean. Uh, it could simply mean that Christ was there all along. He's in control uh, from the end of the beginning. Uh, that's the typical, usual understanding. And that's, that's fine. There's a lot of good application in that. <clears throat> but... I mentioned it last time. I want to focus on it a little bit more. Is the concept of Alpha and Omega. Alpha and Omega are part of the Greek alphabet, right? Is the first letter and the last letter. It's like A and Z in the English alphabet. And what do you do with letters of the alphabet? You spell things. You create words and what do you do with words you write you communicate and what is a person who writes called there's another word he's an author you remember another text somewhere that talks about god being an author revelate or he hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 it says looking unto jesus the author and finisher of our faith. And you remember seven churches, seven periods of church history is a process of completion, right? Jesus, notice, Revelation is the only place that Christ introduces himself as Alpha and Omega. Christ is standing and he's saying, I am the word of God. But more than that, I am an author. I am a finisher. That's why he says beginning and the end. And the book of Revelation, the purpose is to finish the faith of the saints. The author and finisher of our faith is Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega. So Revelation, in a, in a hidden sort of way, Christ is revealing himself as the author and finisher of our faith. And again, I, I'll mention this again. The book of Hebrews and the book of Revelation are very closely intertwined very closely intertwined okay but um i'm wondering how much time i have here not much but let's continue so verses four through eight is sort of a summary of revelation let's look in verse nine verse nine until the end of the chapter is the setting this it's setting the stage Basically, 
for specifically the section in the, in the book about the seven churches. It's setting that stage. So let's begin in verse 9. It says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John is giving a little brief history about himself, just so you know where he is and location. But there's a little bit more that we can learn from that. John here is stating, I am here on the Isle of Patmos, suffering tribulation like many of you, meaning the people he's writing to. He's being persecuted. That's why he's on Patmos. But for what was he persecuted? Notice he is persecuted not just for the word of God. He's persecuted also for the testimony of Jesus. And if you look in chapter 1 and verse 2, John is described as the one who bear record of the word and the testimony of Jesus. So the tribulation that John went through, it was because of both the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, we see a group of people called the remnant of her seed who the dragon is very angry with because they keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus. John is telling us in the very beginning here, I was willing to suffer persecution, not just for the word, but also the testimony of Jesus. I have, a, I have a very difficult time with people who say the spirit of prophecy is not important. Because John was sent to exile for the spirit of prophecy. Can someone say amen? amen. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 12 and then 19 and verse 22, I'm not going to go through that. We'll, we'll, get through, we'll get there later. It clearly defines this testimony of Jesus as the gift of prophecy. And the gift of prophecy right from the onset is a, is a prominent issue in the book of Revelation. Question. I just read yesterday that if we don't believe the spirit of prophecy, it's going to call ourselves down there. She said, um, if we don't believe, she read somewhere that if we don't believe in the spirit of prophecy, then we shouldn't call ourselves Seventh-day Adventists. And uh, it's very difficult to see it any other way when you study the book of Revelation. Um, that's one of those areas where it's, it's black and white. You either are part of the remnant, which have the testament of Jesus, or you're not. It's, it's cut and dry. But we're, we're, getting, we're, we're getting there. Revelation chapter 12, that's where it all begins. But right here, chapter 1, I just want to point that out. John was sent to exile for not just the Bible, although that is a very important aspect, but because of the gift of prophecy. You remember that at the time when John was writing, the apostles were prophesying about Christ. Those were not, their writings were not considered the Bible. Their writings were just, at that point, they were the testimony of Jesus literally because they saw Jesus, they worked with him, they, they touched him. Their writings, apostles, apostolic writings at the time of revelation they were only 
prophecies by apostles or prophets. And at the end of time, there will also be the spirit of prophecy manifest amongst God's people. Anyway, I don't want to get off on that tangent right now. But uh, let's zip through the last few verses here. And then uh, we should be able to close. Okay, I'm not even going to read them because um, I'll just tell you what, <coughs> what they say and we'll come back to them. <coughs> From um, Revelation chapter 10, I wish, <coughs> I wish I could focus a little bit on chap- uh, verse 10, but uh, we don't have time. But from verse 10 until the end of the chapter, most of it is describing the physical appearance of Jesus. John hears a voice behind him. It's on the Lord's Day, the Lord's Day, which is the Sabbath and not Sunday. He hears a voice, he turns around, and then he spends a few verses describing what Jesus looks like, what he's doing, where he is, what he's holding, what he's wearing. And this description then is repeated with each message to the seven churches. So the way that Jesus is standing there, the way he appears, what he's doing, what he's holding, it is a part of the message that he is trying to communicate to the churches. And so in order to better understand that, we'll need to better understand what he is saying to each church. For example... Um, I'll just I'll just give you one. Jesus is standing there um, as he's walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He has seven stars in his hand. When he talks to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter two verse one, it says, "Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write: These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks." So the description of Jesus in chapter 1 is reflected in the specific messages to each church. And so what he's wearing, what he's doing, has specific emphasis with each specific church. So we're not going to be able to go through them right now, but we'll study them as we get to each individual church. There are a few things in chapter 1 that I didn't get to touch on. Perhaps we'll come back to it next week. Um, But at any rate, I better not go any farther or else we'll get caught dead in the water so let's bow our heads for prayer and uh, we'll go from from there father in heaven we're so thankful that you have given us this book may we study it may we uh, keep the things that are written therein and may you grant us that blessing that you have promised us in the book of revelation we pray in jesus name Amen. amen